Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow Him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Thank you. When a couple of my cousins and I were younger, young kids. Um, we had a dream of what we would become when we were adults. It was a big dream that we all shared. You know, some kids want to be astronauts, some want to be professional sports stars, some want to be police officers or firefighters. Not the three of us. No, we wanted to be garbage men. <laughs> and we wanted to be garbage men, garbage men together. See, back when I was a kid, I'd look out the window all the time and there'd be one guy driving, there'd be two guys on the step, like holding on to the back, and they'd hop out in both directions and get the garbage from the street and hop back on that spot. And because Paul and I, he was a few months younger than me, we were older than our cousin Ben, a few years younger. He had to be the driver because that was the lame job in our minds. We would be the ones who would get to hold on on the back, right? Because that's the great job. You're also the one, you know, actually touching trash. But anyway, we didn't see it that way. That was, that was it for us. Um, it's interesting, right, because society kind of places certain priorities on, on certain things, and to be a, a, a garbage man or to do waste management, right, it's like there's nothing powerful or influential in society about that in our minds. So a garbage man sort of right here, you know, my, 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 my 
cousin Ben, the youngest cousin, he, he's a software developer in Seattle now. So if we think about society and how significant that is, well, he's way up here. My cousin Paul, he's a dual citizen. He works for the Department of Defense in Washington, D.C. That's all I can say about it. <laughs> you already know too much. Lock the door. No, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, that's way up here. He works for government in an influential place. That's up here, right? And I, I've become a lead pastor of a church in Chilliwack. I'm somewhere around here. But um, we all become what we become, right? Like we become these different things. And, but it's interesting, and this passage really brings it home, is that we find this man named Moses in a place called Midian as a shepherd, and he's doing that for years and years. Egyptians thought nothing of shepherds. They were nobodies, but he's precisely the man that is going to have an encounter with the living God. He's the guy. And, and we see God do this over and over and over again in the Scriptures, See, our society's view of power and influence is, is, is almost diametrically opposed to the way Jesus sees it. See, the lower down on the totem pole you are in society, watch out. God might do the greatest things in the world through you. If you feel like you're the person in the room who has the greatest need of grace and redemption, like you're so messed up, watch out. Because if God gets a hold of you, he tends to use you for mighty, miraculous things in the world. That's the way God sees it. And this text just shows us this Bible-long theme yet again. Don't worry what society thinks of you. Look at what God thinks. For he is willing to use anyone he saves for his great purposes, the greatest purposes of all. I'm going to give a, you some introductory comments, really, about the first six verses, and then we're going to hang our hats on two points that come out of verses 7 through 10. But before I do, let's pray again and ask God to guide us in this time. Lord, we need you. And Lord, I, I, I just recognize that so much in myself, in my life, and I recognize that here in this moment, Lord. I can say some stuff, but Lord, I pray that your word would go out with power and that it would affect hearts. So may your word be spoken into our lives and would your Holy Spirit impress those truths on us in a way that actually changes us. We look to you this morning. Guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we pick up where Pastor Eldon left off, Moses is on the run. He's just murdered an Egyptian, and he's been found out. So he goes to this place called Midian, and he's become a shepherd here. And it tells us in the text that he's at a place called Horeb, which is later described as the mountain of God. And it's, and it's an appropriate name because of what happened there. God made himself known to Moses. It's the mountain of God because Moses met God there, and it actually seems to be the same place as Mount Sinai, where later in Exodus, Moses received the Ten Commandments and encountered God yet again. God drew Moses to this place in order to reveal himself to him at Horeb, the mountain of God. And like I said, Moses is a shepherd at this time. He's a shepherd leading his flock. He's fled Egypt for being found out about killing an Egyptian. And Moses spends 40 years as a shepherd in Midian. It's a really interesting thing, this whole idea of a shepherd and a murderer. You think that maybe would come up once in the Bible. 
But here Moses is a murderer turned shepherd. Later, God will raise up David to be king, who was a shepherd turned murderer. Then later another will come named Jesus. And how do they describe him? As the good shepherd, who would not murder, but who was murdered. See, Jesus comes and he writes every wrong. Jesus comes and fulfills every truth. And here we find Moses leading a flock, and now he has an encounter with God. Verse 2, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. This is this encounter that he has where um, I've been on a couple hikes, literally probably two uh, in my life, and uh, I've never encountered a bush burning that still kind of existed. Like, usually it burns, right? And is consumed, but this bush is burning and it's not being consumed. And perhaps in the wilderness, Moses had seen a bush burning before out of heat or something like that, like the wildfires we see from time to time. Perhaps, but they get burnt up and consumed. Here is a bush that is burning that he encounters and it's not being consumed. And then a voice comes out of this bush that is burning, an appearance, and, and, and speaks to him and declares that the, the ground on which he's standing is holy ground. So this bush is burning. We see God's presence revealed here in some sense. And the ground beyond it, because of holy God, is even considered holy. Because God has drawn near, the dirt itself is made holy. And the voice says that the ground that he's standing on is holy ground. So untie your sandals. This is really a, 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 an image of, of, of reverence, right? The ground is holy. God is present. Take off your shoes, right? This physical response. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah later, has an encounter with God, a presence of God himself, and he falls on his face. Over and over again, when people encounter God in the scriptures, it's a spiritual situation, but it has a physical implication. Moses encounters God. It's holy ground. The presence of God is there. He unties his shoes out of reverence to God because it's a holy place, holy space. Isaiah encounters God and falls to his face. There's a posture physically that, that kind of connects with what God is doing spiritually. If you're new to church and you're like, why is the person down the row from me raising their hands? What does this mean? This seems strange to me. Or heaven forbid, why is this person on their knees as they're singing? This is odd to me. If you want to know why, it's simply because we believe when we're singing these songs together as the church that we're truly encountering God. We're singing his praises. We are in his presence. And what's happening spiritually in our hearts in this encounter, oftentimes, even right biblically, rolls itself out to this physical response of some kind to say, Lord, I'm here and I'm worshiping you. I'm in awe of you. I'm in reverent worship of who you are. That happens here. Don't get me started on David dancing through the streets in celebration and praise. We might get carried away. But let me tell you, there's, there's example after example after example in the scriptures of people encountering God and their, what's happening spiritually has a physical response as well. That's why we praise like we do. And so this is going on, and it declares in verse 2 that the one speaking is the angel of the Lord. Well, who is this angel of the Lord that, that 
Moses has encountered it. It's an interesting turn of the phrase because he, it goes on to describe him as the Lord, and this voice doesn't speak for God, but speaks as God. This is an encounter with the living God himself. And this is referred to by theologians as a theophany. Maybe there's the word of the day. Theophany. It's, it's, it's an appearance of the invisible God. It's an actual appearing of the invisible God. It's a theophany. And no one in the Old Testament experienced as many theophanies as Moses. God appeared to Moses in the fire of a burning bush, causing Moses to hide his face. Later at Mount Sinai, Moses went up to the mountaintop to worship God. He saw God at a distance and was invited into God's presence, remaining there for 40 days. Later, Moses met face to face with God in Exodus 33. This expression hints at the intimate nature of theophanies. Even though Moses experienced a special and intimate relationship with God, he did not experience full revelation. It was a theophany, only but a partial revelation of God. Moses asked God later to reveal his glory to him, but God refused, telling Moses that no one could see God's face and live. So God passed by Moses, allowing him to see his back or where he just was. And that was enough to make Moses' face shine as he went down the mountain. And many people witnessed the glowing of Moses' face. But see, these are, these are, yes, theophanies in the Old Testament, and nobody had more encounters like this than Moses in the Old Testament, but there's a greater theophany that comes. The greatest theophany is really Jesus, the ultimate theophany, because God's self-revelation culminates in the incarnation of his son, Emmanuel, God with us. See, those who saw Jesus saw God. We've seen this in John's gospel in recent, recent weeks. Experiencing the most profound theophany of all are those who encounter Jesus. So those who encountered the glory of God in the person of Jesus received what Moses had, had, Moses had asked for but couldn't because he would surely die, and that was to see God's glory. And yet in the person and work of Jesus Christ, those who encountered Jesus witnessed his glory. It's an incredible thing that Jesus came and revealed himself in the incarnation. There's also something else going on. This angel of the Lord, God himself, begins the conversation by calling out, Moses, Moses. It's a call of salvation to Moses. See, not every one of us have an encounter like this. We think, oh, I wish I could have been there and seen God in a burning bush and have him call me by name, right? Moses had that. That was, yes, unique and special. And yet, every one of us who has received salvation has responded to God's personal call of salvation. Have you encountered Jesus in your life? Let me tell you, he's called you by name. This is the way God acts. We see it in his interaction with Moses. We see it in everyone who comes to faith in Jesus. God declares to you, right? He declares by name that we are called to receive salvation. It's his grace to us. It's his call upon us. 
First Peter 2 puts it this way. He, God calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He actually changes us and transforms us when he calls us to himself. They, in Exodus 3, God and Moses exchanged names. They met each other. And a question I have for you this morning is, have you met Jesus? Have you had an encounter with him where he has called you by name and drawn you to himself? For that's what he does in salvation. He calls you just as you are, right? Sometimes it's rather a shock. You're just going about your business and then there's a burning bush. Moses, Moses, this is what he does. He calls us out of darkness into marvelous light and he calls us by name. Charles Spurgeon, when preaching on this text, said, Sinner, tell God your misery, even now, and he will hear your story. He is willing to listen, even to that sad and wretched tale of yours about your multiplied transgressions, your hardness of heart, your rejections of Christ. Tell him all, for he will hear it. Tell him what it is you want, what large mercy, what great forgiveness. Just lay your whole case before him. Do not hesitate for a single moment. He will hear it. He will be attentive to the voice of your cry. Have you ever called upon him? That's the way God works. He draws you and calls you by name, and you can heap every ache, every burden, all your repentance upon him, for he calls you, draws you home. Now, let's get into verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have, surely, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a very good, rich land. Now, the Israelites have been afflicted and enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. So let's talk about God stooping to save. They must have been wondering, where is God? Like, Canada is not two centuries old. For four centuries, they have been toiling in Egypt, working hard under brutal taskmasters in slavery, right? wondering, where are you, God? How long is this going to continue? Because you made a covenant, a promise to our father Abraham that you would make us a people, that you would make us a nation, to bless nations. Where are you? 400 years of this slavery. I want you to hear the verbs in Exodus chapter 3 that God declares here. He says, I know. I see. I hear and I will act. This is important for all who have sinned. This is important for all who have been sinned against. This is important for everyone wondering where is God in what you're going through. I know, I see, I hear, and I will act. I think really Exodus 3 really is for those of us who wonder like the psalmist. You know what a really common phrase in the psalm is? It's used often. It's one of the, the, the largest themes in the psalms is this kind of a statement. How long, O Lord? 
Where are you? It's like one of the most resounding themes in the Psalms. How long, Lord? Where are you? Do you feel that way ever? Exodus 3 is for you. The God who is there, the God who makes himself known, declares, I know, I see, I hear, and I will act. You can trust me. He's described as our loving heavenly father. When I was in youth uh, many years ago, like five years ago, um, uh, when I was in youth group, um, there was this great couple who were youth leaders there, and they had a couple little kids at the time, and they just bring their kids to youth. They'd bring their kids to everything we did, like a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and they'd come with, and they were wonderful youth leaders. And there was this one teenage girl who was in our youth group who Sometimes, you know, they'd leave and the kids would be around us, like just the youth, and the parents were doing something with some of the other youth or something, and, and one of the girls would go up to the kids when their mom would leave and say, your mom's gone and she's never coming back. <laughs> and we would all laugh as youth because we thought that was hilarious. Now I'm a parent and I'm horrified. Uh, <laughs> but people would laugh, and so that's what she would say, and she would say it kind of joking, but the two-year-old's like, ah, right? Like, but like... This was a godly mom. She was always coming back. The kid probably had a moment of panic when this teenage girl would whisper those kinds of things to these young children. Is she never coming back? She was always coming back. She's a mom who loves her kids. She's a godly woman. She was always gonna be coming back for them. A couple of weeks ago, my wife was very sick at home and um, she called me during the day one day and said, I I can't get Boston. Grade one, he's in grade one, and uh, I can't get him today. Can you please pick him up? I said, sure, I'll get him. This is about 12 o'clock, she called. Then she called me again at 2.45 and said, where are you? And I remembered as I still was sitting at my desk, oh yeah, I said I'd get Boston at 2.15, across town. And that moment of panic, right? And then I heard the story from my son later, you know, he's talking it through, like, they're like, what did you do? How did you feel? I'm so sorry. And he was like, well, I started to walk home, but then I thought, no, I'm not supposed to do that. So I just went back to my teacher. I found my teacher, and I, I just waited, and I knew you would come eventually. <laughs> <clears throat> and around 2.50, my sick wife went and picked up our son. So... Uh, it, I think it was like the Sunday before Father's Day. So that Father of the Year award really just fell out of my hands in that moment. I, it was a lost cause by then. It was all lost. But the analogy begins to break down to a certain extent because God doesn't forget. But God's always, his timing's always right. He, he'd never leave us alone. He's, he's always going to come. And, and we are meant, even like my son Boston in that moment, I, I, I knew you'd come. We are meant to just, under the sovereign control of God, to say, I mean, the timing seems right to me right now, God. But, but you're God and I'm not. You're sovereign and I, I'm so limited in what I can even understand. I, I know you're coming. And Exodus 3 is this reminder in the midst of the affliction to know that God knows, to know that he sees, to know that he hears, and to know that he will act. For he surely will. And it declares in verse 8 this, I have come down to deliver them, right? God 
stoops to save. The same God who appears to Moses in a burning bush and the ground around it is so holy that he should take his sandals off because it's irreverent to wear sandals on the dirt there that's anywhere close to God. And this God who is that holy and that glorious says, I have come down to rescue and to save. He will rescue his people from bondage and slavery. He declares it in Exodus 3. This word, this phrase, I have come down, really culminates in the incarnation in Emmanuel, God with us. For in Jesus, he truly came down into the fullest extent. Galatians 4, 4 puts it this way. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave in Jesus, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir of what? An heir of heaven. An heir of the glorious riches of Christ. He finds us in our bondage to sin and declares, I have come down to take you from slavery to sonship, to being the heir of the riches of the glory of God. See, these people cried out in affliction, and God heard and saw their cries. We, we, we see that in the text, but in Jesus, it culminates to the extent that in Jesus, God goes from seeing affliction to being afflicted. He goes from hearing our cries to crying out in affliction on the cross. That's how far God condescended. That's how far Jesus stooped to save. See, we are not deistic. We don't believe in a God who is deistic and deism. Deism is the idea that there's a powerful creator who's over all things, but, but, but he, he's not over all things in, in the sense that he doesn't intervene in the universe. So he's powerful and strong and created, but the, 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 view of, the deistic view is one of, but he doesn't intervene in the life of people. But that's not the God of the gospel. That's not the God of the scriptures. Our God is intimately acquainted with our pains and our cries, so much so that he was afflicted, so much so that he cried out, so that we could be saved. The God over all things stooped to serve us in order to save us. Secondly, we see this in verse 10. God sends the saved. God sends the saved. He says in verse 10 to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, this is an interesting statement, isn't it? Because in verse 8, he's just declared... I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. That's what God said in verse 8. I've come down. Now in verse 10, he says, come, Moses, I will send you. What do we make of that? God just said, I have come down to deliver them. Now he's sending Moses? Look, you and I need to see that the sending of God's people is the primary means he uses to bring about his purposes in the world. Now, the temptation for me, the temptation for you, is to desire from God the miraculous, 
and not the ordinary. I kind of need to use air quotes on ordinary, right? We want the miraculous. We want the burning bush. We want a scenario to be happening and God to just intervene and make it right as we stand by in awe. That's what we want. We want the miraculous. We want God to work that way. And we sometimes expect it and then we sometimes sit back and watch for it. But God declares here that there's a people afflicted in slavery and bondage. I have come down to rescue them. Go, Moses. See, the ordinary means that God uses is actually quite extraordinary, that he would use sinners like us, a sinner like me, sinners like you, to further his purposes in the world. This is an incredible thing. He allows us to be a part of his work. See, we want the miraculous, but not the ordinary, the sending of you and me from God. But this is how he's always worked. God sends Adam to tend to the garden. God sends Noah to build an ark. God sends Abraham to go to a land that God would show him. God sends Joseph to save nations from famine. God sends Moses to free his people from bondage. God sends Jonah to warn sinners to repent. God sends his son Jesus to save sinners. What does Jesus declare as he embarks on his ministry? Good news to the poor and liberty to those who are oppressed. God sends his son Jesus to save. And God sends his disciples to make disciples of all nations. Sending his people continues to be the ordinary means of ministry and mercy that God ordained. He has commissioned his church to make disciples and to alleviate injustice and oppression in our communities and world. So look, the primary calling of the Christian, the primary calling of the Christian is union with Christ coming to Jesus, becoming a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. That's the primary calling of people in the world is to come to Christ and have union with Christ and to be a disciple-making disciple. Go, he says to his existing disciples, and make disciples of all nations. Disciples making disciples. That's the primary calling of the Christian, to be unified with Christ, to have union with Christ, and to be a disciple-making disciple. That means your primary calling isn't who you'll marry. Your primary calling isn't where you'll live. Your primary calling isn't which school. Your primary calling isn't to figure out if you'll be an electrician or a plumber. Your primary calling isn't whether or not you'll go into vocational ministry. Now look, this doesn't mean God doesn't care about the little things. He certainly does. He's a gracious, heavenly Father who cares about every detail of your lives. But when we go about asking the detail questions as if they're the big rocks in our lives, we're so backwards. God, what are you calling me to do? God, what's my calling? I'll tell you your calling. Go and make disciples. Go to this school or go to that school. But when you get to the school, be a disciple-making disciple. Marry this believer or marry this believer. But when you marry them, keep that covenant and be a disciple-making disciple. Get a job. Whatever job, whatever job. But when you get that job, be a disciple-making disciple. See, Jesus is gracious. God is gracious in, in revealing some of the details in our lives. But can I just encourage you, don't wait for God to give you some clear calling. He's given it to you in the scriptures. Cling to Jesus and go and make disciples. The rest are the details. The things that seem to be the big rocks in your lives that you're waiting on God to deliver before you go about those things, those are the details. God placed you here and brought you saving faith for the very purpose of disciple-making. Why? Because God sends the saved. 
God sends the saved. So listen, if you've been discerning whether or not God is calling you into missions, let me give you the answer. Yes, he is. And you're already in your mission field. Every one of us. If you've been wondering if God is leading you to care for orphans and widows, let me give you the answer. Yes, he is. If you've been trying to discern whether or not God is calling you to alleviate the afflictions of those around you, let me give you the answer. Yes, he is. Because that's who God is. That's what he's declared. That's the purpose. He has built his church to go about those very things. What jobs we have within the church is a side. It's a detail. What school we go to is a side. Right? Everything else is a side to disciple making, to his purposes in the world, to what he's called us to. God sends the saved. Have you had an encounter with the living God? Have you experienced the grace of the Lord Jesus? If so, here's his commission. It's the same one he gave to Moses. I'm sending you. God, there's this, there's this social injustice happening over here. Do something, do something. I'm sending you. Lord, there are people who don't know you across the world. And there are people in my own community that don't know you. What are we going to do? God, do something. I'm sending you. Lord, these missionaries, how are they going to be supported? Lord, this budget, how are we going to make it? I'm sending you. Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? Tell me, I'll do it. I'm sending you. That's what you're here for. That's what this is all about. God sends the saved. Hudson Taylor, great 19th century missionary to China, said the Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It's a command to be obeyed. Have you been obedient to God? Are you being obedient to God? It's not an option. The Great Commission isn't an option. It's, it's what we are. It's what a disciple is. William Carey, pioneer missionary to India in the late 18th century and early 19th century, is not the commission of our Lord still binding upon us? Can we not do more than now we are doing? I'm asking that question to you. This is what you're here for. This is why you exist. This is why God saved you. For his glory to reach the nations. Has the Great Commission ceased to be binding? No. Can we not do more than we are doing now? I think only each one of us can answer that. I've been around church long enough to know that this is going to go one, or two, one of two ways for us. You're going to feel really guilty. You're going to try and do better. Have this sort of moralistic, religious duty vibe going, right? Oh, man, I'm not doing enough. I need to love people better. I need to work harder. I need to save more people. I need to tell more people. Like, it's just like this guilt and this works and this religious, moralistic duty. Ah! Or... The motivation is the gospel of grace. Here's what I mean. I'll tell you a story I've, I've said before, but it bears repeating. Abraham Lincoln was um, 
running for president of the United States, and uh, his advisors said, hey, you know, the slave trade is one of the big issues, so, you know, to show that you want to abolish slavery in this country, why don't you go to the docks where the slaves come fresh off the ships from Africa and are sold into slavery, why don't you go there and why don't you purchase a slave? And after purchasing that slave, set them free. It will be a mark of what you want to do in your presidency, they said. And he said, fine, I'll do that. So he went to the docks. There was a crowd of slave owners there ready to purchase more slaves. And they roll out the slaves. Some of the sickly slaves, that, that right, the, the, the voyage was hard on them, sold some of those slaves, very, very little amounts. And strong, young men, one at a time, being sold into the slave trade, being auctioned off on the auction block. Finally, a young, beautiful, half-naked woman, sick from the voyage, stands on the auction block. The bidding goes, and the bidding goes. It's going higher, and it's going higher. There's a man near the front who's particularly known as a harsh slave owner who has his eyes on this beautiful young woman, and you can do the math, and he's bidding higher and higher and higher. Abraham Lincoln near the back of the crowd. No one really knows it's him, but he's just lifting his hand, bidding, bidding. It comes down to these two men, back and forth, back and forth. For every bid that harsh slave owner made, Abraham Lincoln in the back was right away, outbidding him, outbidding him, outbidding him. Finally, to this dismay of this harsh slave owner, Abraham Lincoln wins the bid. And these slave traders bring this young woman in shackles and chains before Abraham Lincoln, and he looks at them and says, take off the chains. And they take off the chains, and she's just staring at the ground, pretty certain of what would happen next. And he takes her by the chin and lifts her gaze, and so they lock eyes, and he says to her, you're free. You're free to go wherever you want to go. You're free to be whoever you want to be. You're free. Go. And she's puzzled. She's shocked. And eventually she looks Abraham Lincoln in the eyes and says, if I'm free to be whoever I want to be, free to go wherever I want to go, then I'm going with you. So when I tell you in Exodus chapter 3 that God delivers, that God stoops to save, and then that God saves the sa sends the saved, what I'm getting at there is that this isn't duty, this is joy. You were a sinner in bondage to sin. You were enslaved and in chains. And Christ purchased you. Not just like Abraham Lincoln's money did. Christ purchased you with his blood. And he looked you in the eye and said, you're free. And for every disciple of Jesus, every true disciple of Jesus, they look Jesus back in the eyes and say, then I'm going with you. Do they not? Of course they do. Listen, it says in verse 10, come, I will send you. It seems odd because God is saying, I have come to deliver them. And then he says, I'm sending you. And you get the vibe like Moses is just supposed to go. Like Moses is supposed to um, like go by himself back into Egypt where he's guilty of murder and set a people free. Like 
He's probably freaking out at this point, and maybe you are too. How do I go? I'm so ill-equipped. Well, the same is true for Moses that is true for us. God doesn't send Moses alone. You'll see it next week and in the coming weeks. God is using a shepherd to free his people, and God's doing the hard labor. God sends you, but he doesn't send you alone. He is with you. See, he's given you his word to go with you wherever you go. He's given you his spirit to dwell inside you in every circumstance and to prompt your heart. And he has given you his church so that we can be a gospel community that spur one another on unto disciple making. That is what he has done. In this story we see this morning, this very true story of Moses, it's so true for us. This is an unchanging God who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He still acts this way. God intervened in the lives of those crying out to him because of their affliction by sending Moses. God intervenes in the life of those who genuinely cry out to him in the midst of their affliction. He's proven that he does in sending Jesus. And God still hears the cries of those who call on him. God still intervenes in the lives of the afflicted, and he still responds like he did with Moses. I am sending you. Let's pray. God, left to our own devices, I say this often of of my role here, left to my own devices, I will burn this place down. That's how good I am at what I do. (laughs) So I'm just dependent on you, Lord to build your church. Left to our own devices, we can't make a single disciple on the planet, but you don't tell us to go apart from you. You tell us to go empowered by your spirit, holding your word of truth in our hands and having a community of believers as the church to hold one another up, to spur one another on, to encourage one another in the faith. Lord, would you use us as a disciple-making place? a disciple-making people, that we would rely on you as Moses is about to in this story to do miraculous, incredible things through extremely ordinary means, us. We need you, Lord. I pray, too, for the, the weary and the heavy laden, for the afflicted here this morning who, who most resonate with the Psalms that say, how long, O Lord, may we remember, may we discover that you know You see, you hear, and you act. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.